Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. It'll probably come as no surprise to many of you that I've always dreamt of being an astronaut, to follow in the footsteps of my heroes in Star Trek, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations. Though I'm no astronaut yet, I am a planetary scientist and an astrobiologist trying my best to realize that dream from deep within Earth's gravity well. Today's guest, Purdue Planetary Science PhD student Emily LaFleche, is also an aspiring astronaut who sources a great deal of inspiration from science fiction. But she's much farther along the path to actually going to space than me. Emily recently commanded an analog astronaut mission called Vulcan, which simulated sending a crewed mission to the far side of the moon. So I really look forward to learning from Emily about the kind of science that she wants to do on the lunar surface, to what she thinks makes a good leader, to how she wrestles with some of the ethical conundrums of human space exploration. Ready? Three, two, one. Blast off. Commander LaFleche, welcome to Strange New Worlds. Hi, everybody. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you on board. The first thing that we do is get to know our guests a little bit more on the podcast. So, Emily, I know that you have an undergraduate degree in planetary science and are now pursuing your PhD in planetary science as well, with a significant bias towards problems of an astrobiological nature. And that particular academic path seems very familiar to me. (laughs) Um, So I'm very curious to know how you came to choose these areas of study. For me, I think astrobiology was sort of my first real love of science. I try to describe my my approach to how I became a scientist as sort of like a it came in blips and then all at once. Um, <laughs> I sort of learned about exoplanets, which is what I currently study, actually pretty early on when I was around 12. And I found this really cool magazine article that was talking about at least 581G and how it might have been habitable, or at least they thought so at the time. And I just remember reading that article and being like so mind blown about how that is even a possibility that we were able to come to. Like, it was crazy to me. But I experienced a lot of, I guess, anxiety when it came to science and math in particular when I was in uh, elementary school and high school. And I was really told by a lot of my professors that like I maybe wasn't cut out for it just because it took me a bit longer to really understand the topics uh, that a lot of other people it came very naturally to. So I kind of put it on the back burner for a while. Um, But then in grade nine, uh, my science teacher, Miss Safi, she had us watch a video about extremophiles. And I realized at that point that life was so, it was everywhere. You know, it could be thrown into literally any situation and it'll figure it out. It'll find a way. And at the time, I didn't really realize how the synapses had fired and maybe clicked for me. But I think looking back on it, not only did that like initially spark my passion for, you know, astrobiology and like where life could be found in the universe, but it also really gave me a perspective that like I could also thrive in environments that I might not have originally felt comfortable in and like that I could really get involved in things that sparked my interest, even though they scared me. So yeah, that's kind of how I like to think about my journey. (laughs) That is so poetic. Oh my goodness. I love that. I have never thought about extremophiles in that light, but it's so true. They are thriving in environments that all of humanity basically thought no life could survive in. And when you take that lesson of extremophiles into your own life and say, wow, all of these doubters telling me I can't do science or engineering or math, but yeah, let me just prove them wrong. You know, I'm an extremophile. Oh, that's so great. 
And you know what's also cool is that I ended up in a lab currently, the Fab Lab at Purdue, which is Purdue Habitability and Biosignatures Lab, um, that has an extremophile as its mascot. We have a tardigrade (laughs) with like a little crown. (laughs) It was was a full circle moment, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I mean, a tardigrade uh, played a very big role in Star Trek Discovery's first season. So um, there's a connection to Star Trek right there as well. And I also really resonate with your um, bringing up your ninth grade science teacher. Um, My my ninth grade science teacher also, uh, I think, was one of my main influences in, you know, empowering me to think about uh, science as a career. Mrs. Moser uh, was very passionate about all things geology, and she wasn't really supposed to teach a lot of earth science, but just decided to find spaces in the curriculum to inject that in there. And we ended up studying minerals. She had a giant collection of gems. And I think that really helped sway me towards uh, earth and planetary sciences myself. So that's that's a really cool story, too. That's very relatable, honestly, because <laughs> I sort of came into the astrobiology field as very much with the biology mindset because of the extremophile video. And when I got to college, I started to like really find myself interested in planetary science or like specifically like rocks Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, and a lot of my astronomy compatriots were like uh what do you mean by that like why are you going into rock science (laughs) Um, they're like like you're so good at like star stuff why are you going into rock stuff and I'm like well guess what planets are made out of (laughs) Um, or at least the ones that might be habitable right and so I was like you know, always kind of trying to show everybody that, yes, I could actually do science, but also, trust me, planetary science is important. I promise. It's so cool. Absolutely. So I did my PhD in planetary science and, you know, study astrobiology. But one thing that my journey does not have is following in the footsteps of a Star Trek legend, that's something that you've done. Uh, tell me tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so this is actually something I didn't know when I started my undergrad, um, but I came to learn about it because he's something of a legend in the Montreal community <laughs> and also, I guess, worldwide. Mm-hmm. Um, so Captain Kirk, uh, mm-hmm. i.e. William Shatner, <laughs> mm-hmm. went to McGill, which is my undergrad institution. Um, and he also actually grew up in NDG in Montreal, which is like a borough that is actually quite close to where I grew up. So it's really cool just to see like all the similarities in our path. Um, Mind you, I know that (laughs) Will Shatner did not have an easy time at McGill. He specifically says that like the extracurriculars that he was involved in were like his favorite part. And I would have to agree. I think McGill is a very academically difficult institution, but I got involved in a lot of really cool extracurriculars when I was there including the McGill Space Group, which if he had had access to the McGill Space Group at the time that he was an undergrad in the 50s, I think he would have joined it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, he did his bachelor's in commerce at McGill, and he also got an honorary doctorate from McGill uh, in 2011, which is like almost a full decade before I started, but still very cool that he was ever gracing the halls that I walked through. (laughs) Sharing that connection with Captain Kirk himself means that uh, I think you're destined for the stars, Emily. (laughs) Well, he did go to space um, with Blue Origin, right? That's right. Yes. It would be very cool to follow in his footsteps for sure. Well, if, uh, you know, there is a a ladder up to space that you are climbing, I'd say you're pretty much halfway there because just last year you were the commander of a 15-day analog astronaut mission at the Lunares Research Station in Poland and I'm just so excited to ask you about this experience and pick your brain about it because it sounds so cool but before we get into all those details let's start with the basics here for those in the audience who have never heard of analog astronaut missions what are they and why do we do them I've actually had to explain this to my parents several times, (laughs) convincing them that I'm not just randomly taking a plane to Poland for no reason. (laughs) Uh, So analog missions, I kind of like to think about it as a way to bring space down to Earth. Um, When we think about how humans might fare in long-term space exploration, one of the biggest questions that we come up with is like, how does the isolation affect the human body? And that's actually something that we can test without 
needing to be actually in space. Um, we don't necessarily need the effects of microgravity to test how crew dynamics function or even what types of experiments might we want to conduct before we launch a bunch of astronauts into the unknown. And so analog missions are a way to essentially do that on Earth in a controlled environment. And you know, if you ask somebody who's been to a different analog site than I have, they may have a completely different answer because some analog sites are specifically designed for geological research and like they're set in actual places that are considered either lunar or Martian analog sites where like you might find similar types of rocks or minerals um, and be able to conduct research on them. But the one that I was at uh, was a more controlled environment. So it was set on a post-military air base, which was a very cool place to be. Um, it felt very like secretive and <laughs> going into the base itself, it's like kind of in a forest. So it very much felt like we were entering a different like dimension. And, you know, obviously our actual living day was not set in a Mars-like environment, but the uh, mission control really did an awesome job at like simulating what it might feel like to live in a habitat for, for two-ish weeks. So yeah, I think the analog sites that you go to differ quite widely amongst what they choose to focus on, but uh, the one I went to was pretty cool. I'm biased, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds awesome. I noticed that your mission was named the Vulcan mission. And as you know, Vulcan is a word that is near and dear to every Star Trek fan. It's the name of one of our favorite planets in the Star Trek universe that is home to the Vulcan species. Uh, any particular reason why your mission was named Vulcan? Yeah, okay, so that connection we did not know about, but honestly, <laughs> I'm so happy that we did choose that name. Um, we were throwing around a lot of different names at the start of the mission, and actually that was one of the first like team building exercises that our crew ever went through. And it was quite difficult coming on to a name because we all had such different ideas as to what the mission was going to look like. And, you know, I'll get into the research that I did on the mission in a little bit, but I think really i was focused on making this mission about working towards this goal of having us all collaborate really well based on this one research project that i had proposed involving craftsmanship and the fact that we landed on a crater so we had to pick a landing site uh that had sort of extrusive volcanism on the lunar far side which if you're a planetary scientist you know that that's not a very common occurrence and so because of the volcanism aspect, because of the craftsmanship aspect, we went with the Roman god for volcanism and craftsmanship, which is Vulcan. And we originally wanted to do Hephaestus, which is like the Greek equivalent, um, would have probably loved that too, except that's a much more complicated name to pronounce. <laughs> Vulcan yeah. was the easiest thing, and uh, I'm, I'm really happy that we went up with that name. I like the connection that there was a, a scientific reason why Vulcan was the name, this uh, kind of connection to volcanoes. So so for this mission, as you mentioned, you chose this very specific crater on the moon where there was this kind of extrusive volcanism as your landing site. Why did you pick that particular location? And how did you simulate being in that location on the moon while you were really just somewhere in Poland? That's a great question. Um, so I think the simulation part is different for every mission. So every mission picks a completely different landing site. And when they asked us to pick a landing site, I immediately knew which crater I was going to go for. I picked Tsiolkovsky Crater, which was actually the topic of a research project that I did uh, in 2020 with the Western in, uh, University Institute for Earth and Space Exploration. We were like a team of a couple of students and we had to propose a potential landing site for Artemis. And uh, mm. we proposed a whole bunch of craters, but then the one that I proposed was Solkovsky because I just found it so fascinating that there was this example of, you know, volcanism on the lunar far side that had yet to be explored and humans had never been to the lunar far side. And in fact, the only NASA astronaut that was a geologist, Harrison Schmidt, actually vouched for this landing site. He wanted to go for Apollo 17 and they never chose it because it was just too expensive. They couldn't justify how much extra cost would be associated with a relay satellite. And so our team designed this mission proposal around sort of having a rover 
working alongside a CubeSat that would vastly reduce the costs associated with the relay satellite, but also provide this opportunity for the, the crew to explore this incredible, like, you know, landing site and environment on the lunar surface. And, you know, because of all of the basaltic region being so flat, we also determined that it would be a great place to set up a habitat on the lunar surface. So, yeah, with all of these things taken into consideration, we really loved this landing site. And when I proposed it to the crew, they were like, yeah, let's do it. And so that was sort of the way that we were able to simulate it was really just like me explaining the scientific value of the crater and how that might have tied into the research project I wanted to do. And they were all for it. They were like, oh my God, that's so cool. Like we can even simulate that communications delay that might be occurring with the astronauts and mission control. So mission control did not get back to us for like a couple minutes every time we would send them a message. And when we had our meetings with them, it was a little bit spotty. So we really tried to like really replicate that isolation feeling, um, which was amazing. Wow. I really love the connections to Harrison Schmidt, that only geologist, as you said, who's ever visited the moon so far. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, when I was in grad school, I had to walk past a picture of Harrison Schmidt every <laughs> single day. It was like just a giant mural on the wall, uh, which was really inspiring and really cool. Uh, but also, I love this kind of relevancy to not just the past, but also the future, where you were exactly. choosing this because it's a great landing site for the Artemis missions, which will bring humans back to the moon for the first time since, what, the 70s? Yeah, exactly. Apollo 17 was the last one in the Apollo program. So it just felt like, again, such a full circle moment to be this early career researcher working on my first you know, real research project um, and being able to really bring the past into the future and relive some of the cool memories and archive material that I found that like really showed how much uh, Schmidt wanted that landing site. So it was awesome. <laughs> That's great. So Emily, as any Star Trek fan knows, a good crew is made up of a very diverse set of backgrounds and expertise and personalities Tell me about your crew on the Vulcan mission. Who were they and what were their specialities? We had quite a mix, actually. Um, you know, we had me, a planetary scientist, who is the commander, but we also had a pilot slash geologist slash biomedical engineer, uh, Raul, wow. who was our um, media officer, but also our medical officer. He did a fantastic job. Um, we also had Maria, who was a civil engineer, and she was our bio lab officer. Super cool. Um, she was one of like my like rocks <laughs> um, during the mission. I really like leaned on her a lot for like the emotional support and uh, just like friendship that we developed over the mission. It was so cool. And then we had Hassam, sweet, sweet boy. <laughs> He's <laughs> actually a mechanical engineer. He's currently in Egypt setting up his own analog site actually uh, with the Egyptian space agency so he is killing it but because and he was also our um, engine our mission engineer so he was in charge of fixing things that broke which let me tell you <laughs> we had quite a few things break on our mission so with that amazing crew I think we really developed quite a bond by the end of it and were able to learn a lot from each other. Like working with engineers really changed my mindset because I'm so used to thinking in this very like research focused, like science brain. And they have a very like technical sort of how do I fix this type of brain, which is so cool to be able to have alongside my research project. Yeah, definitely. Okay, let's turn to those research projects now. Um, all good research projects, of course, need an acronym, and yours were called Gravels and Temple. So you did two. Let's start with Gravels first. Tell me a little bit about Gravels. Okay, so yes, the acronyms are one of my favorite parts about the project. <laughs> of um, course. So we really, we really worked on this one for a while. Um, GRAVEL stands for Geological Research and Analyses via EVA Lunar Sample Collection. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and so really, this project was sort of an initial thought of mine that as one of the only planetary scientists who has ever been to Lunaris as a crew member, they wanted me to essentially lead one of the first planetary science research projects at that site. And uh, I was racking my brain for weeks about this. It was really difficult because, as I kind of alluded to before, um, Lunaris is not set in a typical analog 
environment. And so all of the EVAs are held, so EVAs, extravehicular activities, were held in a chamber that was actually an old bomb shelter wow. uh, that there was like, it was all rigged up to really simulate what it would look like to walk on the moon. And it was mm. such a cool chamber to be in. Um, we were fully suited when we were entering that chamber too. So it really added to the immersion experience. However, it didn't provide the opportunity for in situ measurements of rocks or anything because these rocks are not in situ. They're like gravel, <laughs> quite literally. And there were two types of sort of lithologies, quote unquote, that you might have found in that chamber. So there was sand or our felsic samples and uh, gravel, which was our like basaltic samples, which is actually quite representative of the type of material you might find on Slikovsky Crater. So that was a cool extra little anecdote I did not anticipate. Hmm. But because of the environment I was working with, I had such a hard time coming up with a research project that would really scream planetary science. And then I found out that Lunaris has 3D printers. And Ooh. I was like, okay, I can work with this. So my idea was to essentially pretend like we were in a situation where we had just encountered a completely different planetary environment than the one that we were expecting. Um, we had just landed in this crater. We had no idea what we were even looking at. And we needed to do research on what the ground samples were, but we didn't have the tools to do it. Um, and so we basically had two options. Either we wait for, you know, a refill from NASA or whatever space agency. We just wait for another rocket to send us the tools or we print them mm. and we design them ourselves. And so this is where Gravels was really born is creating 3D printed tools for planetary science research on the lunar or even someday maybe Martian surface that would allow both analog astronauts and maybe even someday real astronauts in space to conduct low cost, very easy to print research with these materials and essentially would completely remove the barrier of like, well, we don't know where we've ended up, so we can't really do <laughs> research anymore. Um, it would give them the opportunity to design like custom tools for the environment they've encountered and really give the, the researchers the creativity aspect that is also so important on an analog mission because we want to feel at the end of the day like we're people. We don't necessarily mm -hmm. just want to feel like we're cogs in a machine. And so Gravels really became this incredible collaborative project for our crew where we ended up creating this awesome Roxbox 1.0 system, <laughs> um, which uh, is essentially like a little tiny sample collection box that fits onto a little mini rover we had access to called the Leo rover. And it allowed us to more easily sample the materials that we were trying to sample on the lunar surface, um, or in our case, the analog lunar surface. So uh, this project began on my mission. And then after that, it continued on every other mission that has run to date at Lunares. Uh, wow, you're such a trendsetter. <laughs> I know. It's almost like uh, I was literally appointed by Lunaris to be their geological research coordinator this year. <laughs> um, and so it, I'm so excited that other crews have found so much excitement and interest in this research because it really combines the skills from the engineers on our crew, the geologists on our crew, and even the scientists that are not even in those fields. It really gives them the opportunity to contribute to this. I guess, wider notion that like we need tools to do what we want to do in space. And if we don't come with them, we can make them. We don't need to let that limit us in our adventures in the cosmos, you know? And so, yeah, Gravels is fantastic. We've created um, a GitHub repository for all of the tools that have been created thus far and will actually be continuing to fill that repository so that all of the tools are open access to anybody who wants to print them themselves, use them on an actual analog site, any of that. So we hope that it will make a small dent in the in the scientific contributions of our crew. <laughs> That's just wonderful. You know, in Star Trek, um, there's this technology called the replicator, which is basically, you know, a box where you can create, I think, from the atomic scale, just something that was pre-programmed into the computer, whatever it is that you need, a specific tool, even food to eat. And basically what you're doing here is you're pioneering the replicator using 3D printing technology of our day to make sure that our analog astronauts and maybe one day actual astronauts can have the tools that they need and that flexibility that they need to explore 
very diverse and unexpected environments. I mean, I love that connection. I, I think that it is so pertinent to what I just described, because really it does give us the opportunity to build something from the ground up. Um, we don't necessarily build it around something else. We don't necessarily even have materials to like be building things, putting them together as we would normally think. So like filaments that we can just sort of melt down and create this tool out of is really like a replicator. <laughs> it just kind of gives us that opportunity to like create something from what feels like nothing, which is such a magical experience. I became so obsessed with 3D printers when I was on my mission. So <laughs> yeah, it was a great time. Can you give me like one example, maybe your favorite thing that you 3D printed that was relevant to the mission at hand? Okay, full disclaimer, I had never 3D printed before this mission. <laughs> and I had also never used a system or like a software that could you know, design STL files, which is what you use to 3D print. So I was like totally out of my element in that situation. But our mission like sort of culminated in the creation of what I described, which is like the rocks box. And it like looked so cool when we printed it. It was really simple, actually. It was just like a, a black like box, plastic PETG box um, with these cool hexagon designs that we created in the corners. And we also had like Rocksbox 1.0 logo written on the side <laughs> with some like shelves that were interchangeable that you could sort of just plop in and they were perfectly fitted to some sample collection tubes that we had already printed. Mm -hmm. um, and frankly, like the fact that it A, fit onto the Leo Rover the first time we printed it, uh, which took a lot of finagling and B, worked so well that other people were even impressed with how durable and sustainable this like design was. It was one of my proudest accomplishments by that point, because I didn't even think I could 3D print, let alone create something that was, you know, that could actually sustain itself through multiple missions and is still in use at Lunares. So um, that was just like such a cool moment for me and also the rest of the crew, because I worked with Raul every single day trying to learn Blender, which is the software we ended up using to create the STL files. And we struggled like <laughs> it was a difficult process. So having like the crew really participate in the project was my favorite part by far. It was such a cool experience. Yeah, definitely. I can just imagine that. I mean, one of the best parts about science, you know, is working on a team with people uh, of different backgrounds, all teaching each other and contributing. And also some of my favorite scenes in Star Trek are like that, too, where people from different divisions are trying to science out a problem that they've never encountered before and uh, coming up with some brilliant solution that, you know, is, is completely novel. So way to go. That's awesome. It's kind of like the Mark Watney quote, like, I'm going to science the shit. <laughs> exactly. Yes. It's literally that. It's <laughs> one of my favorite characters uh, ever. But yeah, I definitely very much had those quotes plastered on my logs from the mission. I was, you know, I had to take notes on the crew every day, but I had a bunch of Mark Watney quotes scattered throughout my notebook. So it was very cool to sort of have that moment. I bet. Yeah. He's such an inspiring character. Yep. So tell me about your second research project, Temple. Okay, so this one came about a little bit through a stroke of luck, to be honest. So I only proposed one project prior to the mission. I was not planning on working on a second real research project when I was there. But Temple, which stands for testing the effects of meteorite powder on lettuce growth. <laughs> Again, we really like loved our acronyms on this yeah. mission. It, it became this possibility during our pre-flight medical examinations, actually. So for those who aren't really familiar with how analog missions usually go, there's like pre-flight, which is around two, three days, can be longer depending on the analog site. And essentially mission control gets us like tested fully to make sure that we are healthy and able to be isolated for two weeks. They collect a little bit of preliminary data on us because at the end of the day, we are the subject as well of research. And when we were getting our medical examinations by our lovely flight surgeon, he's just the absolute coolest Polish doctor. Like he's a military doctor. So you can really think like this man is large and like intimidating in structure and just like such a cool dude. I was afraid of him, to be honest. At first. <laughs> um, and he's like, are you commander? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> and mm. he's like, I have to show you something. 
And I wasn't really sure what what the hell he was talking about. I was kind of just sitting there like really scared right after my medical examination. And he's like, I know that you work for NASA. And I'm like, that's that's partially true. I don't I don't really think that I work for NASA. I like my grant money is from NASA. Yeah. Um, well, I think you're, you're as close to working for NASA <laughs> as anybody can be without actually working for NASA. That's how sure. I rationalized it when I was a PhD student. <laughs> That's a great way to look at it. Yeah. So at that point, I was like, yeah, sure. Um, and he's like, I have this, this, like, basically a Nalgene bottle sized thing of ordinary chondrite meteorite powder crushed up. It's a huge bottle. And my planetary scientist brain is exploding at this point. I'm like, why do we have access to this? This is so expensive. How do you have a meteorite powder? <laughs> like, it belonged to him. And it was being stored in our mech lab at Lunares. And I was like, okay, I have so many questions. But he's like, I trust you. I trust you to use this in whatever way you want to use it. And I'm like, I have access to meteorite powder. Like I have to do something with this. Like <laughs> I, I felt compelled and ask any of my crewmates. I was running around like a chicken without a head for like an entire day, trying to figure out what we could do with this newfound information because I just, I needed to do something. And I realized that we didn't have any projects going on in the bio lab, um, or at least we weren't running like active ones. And so I was like, wait, we have a lot of different types of seeds that we can grow in this bio lab. We have a hydroponic setup and an aeroponic setup. We have quite a few options in terms of how we can really grow plants. And I was thinking to myself, like, okay, what would Mark Watney do? He was growing <laughs> potatoes on Mars. Yeah. And that was in Martian soil or regolith. And, you know, the thought came to me of like, is that even safe? Like, can we even actually do that? Are there not heavy metals or some other type of potentially dangerous component in the soil that you would initially have to bioremediate. And that's when it hit me. What if we use meteorite powder as sort of an example of this primitive planetary material and try to extract the heavy metals from it with bioremediator plants? And lettuce and cabbage being one of the best examples of that and spinach, which is also something we ended up testing out, contrary to what the name implies, you know, those are very popularly used for that exact purpose on Earth. When there's like a heavy metal spillage or leakage on a really big agricultural land, we oftentimes use crops to essentially absorb up all of those heavy metals and fix the soil so that we can use it for future crops. So our entire project was basically based on how effective can these plants be in removing heavy metals from meteorite powder. And the project is very much ongoing because it is quite a complex situation. And I designed the entire experimental methods in like 24 hours of sleepless, like pure adrenaline <laughs> through my veins. Uh, I was like really having like a, a goodwill hunting moment of just like writing on the board, like so fast with all of my ideas. My crewmates were like, she's crazy. Um, but, you know. Crazy brilliant, they mean. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. They were like scared of me at one point. They're like, oh, my God, she's like really going in. Um, but they like really believed in the idea, which is also something I loved about my crew is just like how down for whatever they were like they really trusted my vision and the project is ongoing because we're currently looking for a lab to process the plant samples that we ended up coming up with at the end of our mission so that's very much in progress maybe not as far along as gravels is but i still feel so excited about that project and the flight surgeon has given it his stamp of approval so that to me was better than any kind of validation that i could have possibly received from this is just like the fact that this this man believed in me and had access to this really cool material so yeah that's temple that is such a fun story. I, I love it because it's like this sort of stroke of luck that you had access to this extraordinarily precious material. And as a fellow planetary scientist, I share in your geeking out and uh, excitement over it. Oh my God, meteorite powder. What are we going right. to do with this? And I think it was such a creative move to try to grow something in it because it's not just cool science, but it's also extremely relevant to the future of human space exploration, right? That we'd have to grow our own food in material at hand and try to figure out whether or not you can make that soil safe for further crops. And I look forward to hearing the results from this experiment. That's so cool. 
Oh yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to publishing it at some point if it ends up, you know, really panning out. But, you know, as a PhD student, my life is extremely hectic. So <laughs> we're kind of like, yes, I am the geological research coordinator at Lunares. And yes, like I'm actively working with them on several crews, but I'm also like really busy. So I'm, I'm kind of trying to piece together everything a bit slowly, but one day, hopefully the research will be of use to somebody. Well, I completely understand about that hectic lifestyle, but, <laughs> you know, maybe it can be uh, a bonus chapter in your thesis to talk about uh, the research that you were able to do on, on this analog mission. That would be great. Yeah, you never know, honestly. I mean, yeah, my current research being on exoplanets, I, I very much long for the days when I was working in a biogeochemical lab and, you know, now working with uh, analog missions. I'm loving the fact that I get to come back to that hands-on research that I sort of did a lot in undergrad and then sort of left behind in favor of modeling and other types of research. So it's great. So after you came back from your analog mission uh, to the far side of the moon, you wrote this fabulous piece in Sky News magazine about your astronaut experience. And you write in your piece about having to solve some difficult crew dynamics issues. And, you know, all captains in Star Trek are called upon to do similar things to subdue the squabbles of their crew. Kirk had to tend to Spock and Bones when their logical and emotional sides butt heads. Janeway had to delicately merge two completely separate crews, a Starfleet crew and a Maquis resistance crew to survive in the Delta Quadrant. And Cisco had to manage what seems to be at times a band of hooligans on Deep Space Nine, et cetera, et cetera. The list goes on. As the commander of the Vulcan mission, how did you resolve the interpersonal issues that you faced? Yeah, they were definitely not something I expected to deal with. You know, when I was given the title of commander, I was at first quite intimidated. I was like, oh, what did I even do to deserve this? And what a lot of people told me initially was, you'll find a way to make it your own somehow, some way. And I didn't really anticipate that being that I would need to make some really difficult decisions when I was on my mission as a result of challenging crew dynamics. So I'm not going to go into too much of what those looked like, but I will mention that they did warn us. They gave us fair warning. Uh, Mission Control really sat us down as soon as we walked in and they were like, look, there's going to be this moment in about the middle of the mission. This is well documented, by the way. Many other crews go through this exact phase where everyone is getting on your nerves <laughs> mm -hmm. and sometimes you can get past it and sometimes you can't. And uh, this really is fueled, especially by the fact that none of us knew each other before entering this mission. And so not only was it novel in the sense that we were in an environment that none of us had been in, but we also didn't have the familiarity to really like lean on each other in those moments. And so we actually started out with more crew members than we ended up leaving with. And that was as a result of a couple of complicated scenarios that as commander, I kind of had to... Um, really step to the plate and deal with without really letting my personal feelings of the situation get in the way. Quite difficult to do, by the way, when you are in an environment where the only other people that you are surrounded by are sometimes the people who are actively causing <laughs> you to have a very challenging time. But with the crew members that remained, I developed such a close bond to them because we had to go through these challenges together and it really became so much about developing this, this confidence in my ability to carry on despite feeling like everything was going wrong. Like it really felt like things were irreparably broken at that point. And I was just like, can I even do this? Can I even get past this point? Am I failing in my job as commander because things are not working out? And then one of my crewmates, Maria, came up to me and she's like, look, I have so much faith in you. I think that you are going to end up doing the right thing for all of us, because at that point, the individual in question was really affecting all of our mental health. And so, you know, after having many conversations with Mission Control, the issue was dealt with um, in a way that I think was very diplomatic and professional and really showed me that uh, space exploration, like we, we tend to think about the challenges of like, how do we get a rocket up there? How do we set up a habitat in a completely foreign place? But really the issue is humans. Humans are complicated oh, yeah. 
very picky and fickle creatures. And mm-hmm. it can be so challenging to put a group of them in a room and have them get along for a couple weeks, <laughs> especially when you are actively having to do so many tasks every single day and report to mission control regularly and things like that. So you know, the people that I went on this mission with are so near and dear to my heart because we went through this together. But it also really gave me the opportunity as a young woman who, you know, was leading an entire crew to come into my own and really find where I fit in this title of commander. And what did that really mean for me? Um, How do I become the commander of my own personal life and journey rather than of just these, these individuals? So it was a, it was a very challenging, but in the end beneficial experience for me. That's a very powerful story. Something that I've heard you mention multiple times now in this conversation is that element of trust where Maria came up to you and said, I trust you to make the right decision. You're going to make the right decision for all of us. And when uh, your your other crewmate said, I trust you to do what is best with this very precious meteorite material, that kind of trust that you instill in, in people as their commander is one of those like intangible qualities, traits that that I think makes you such a good commander, such a good leader in any situation. What other qualities would you say make a good starship captain? <laughs> I love that. Um, I think there's this idea that a lot of people have, and this is actually the one that I started out with, um, that a commander is somebody who directs and is objective and does not feel there's no feelings associated with the decisions that they make. They are very direct and focused and driven towards their particular goals. And I think that can be one type of commander, but that will never be me. Mm. Um, I never felt that that was something I could align with both morally and ethically. I felt that, you know, these people are people I deeply care about and I am not capable of not caring. Like that's something that I learned on this mission as well as I'm so passionate about my research. I'm so passionate about space exploration and pretending like I didn't care so that I could be this, this image of what I thought a commander was, was not beneficial for me in any way. And so I think the traits of a good commander are somebody who is empathetic, who is considerate, who listens who does what is best for the greater good, despite potentially having a really difficult time themselves in a similar situation. And then they sort of give up things, they sacrifice things in order to make the others that they are with feel more comfortable, feel more at ease in the situation where you have been told that you must lead. And, you know, I think that's also just indicative of a leader in general. My whole life, I've been put in leadership positions and I've learned a whole lot about what makes a good leader and what makes a very bad one. I've really struggled over the years with learning where my identity fits into that as somebody who's actually quite sensitive and has always, you know, had this drive to really get involved in a lot of different things, but make sure that I was staying true to myself at the end of the day. And I I think that I learned what a commander looks like to me, what a good commander looks like to me, not to like... (laughs) you know, uh, pat myself on the back. But I think that our crew really appreciated that despite the difficult moments we went through, I was able to sort of like make sure that everyone felt like they had a place in the group, that they had a voice in the group, that they felt comfortable coming to me with problems that they were experiencing and that we could get through it as a group together without them feeling isolated because they felt like they just had to go, go, go and achieve the goals we had set for ourselves by ignoring what they were feeling. So really taking into account the emotional status of your crew is so, so important and is really what I think commanders should be doing. I think whether you become an astronaut commander actually flying to the moon or Mars or a professor with her own PhD group, your students or your crew, they're going to be very lucky. They're going to be very lucky people to have you (laughs) as their leader. I mean, I will say also, I've had such good mentorship examples of leadership over the years, especially from the women I've worked with. I mean, my current advisor, Stephanie, is a great example of a fantastic leader. She's so empathetic and caring, but also just so driven about her own research. And, you know, I've had so many professors over the years who have shown me what it's like to 
care so deeply about what you research, what you do, but also remember that you always need to make it easier for the next person after you who comes after you to achieve the same things that you wanted to achieve. When you're a trailblazer, you need to blaze the trail. You need to make sure that it's easy for people to get to the same point that you got to, that maybe you struggled to get to. So it really gave me a great perspective on that. And it was kind of a coming of age in a way, which is funny because like I'm in my mid twenties, but it really <laughs> did feel like that to me at that point. Well, that reminds me of this uh, quote from Commander Michael Burnham in Star Trek Discovery, where she says in this very beautiful scene, we've always looked to the stars to discover who we are. And it sounds like by doing this analog astronaut mission, you discovered something new about yourself. Yep, that's a perfect way to describe it. It really was an experience that was not only unforgettable because it's such a weird freaking thing to do, but I think it was unforgettable in the sense that it gave me such an insight on who I am and who the crew is and what I want to do in life. So yeah, it looking to the stars to find out who you are is underrated, but very, very accurate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I want to return briefly to this Sky News article that you published. You referenced Andy Weir's novel, The Martian, and uh, wrote that Mark Watney, whom we've already mentioned on the podcast, yeah. the fictional astronaut, the main character in The Martian, represents to you an imperfect astronaut, that uh, his character allowed you to believe that showing up as the most authentic version of yourself might be the key to achieving your lofty dreams of spaceflight. And I think this is so important because too often when it comes to imagining astronauts, there's this idea that we can only think of a very select group of people um, that have the quote-unquote right stuff, a nearly unachievable list of characteristics and attributes. So tell me more about this idea of your imperfect astronaut, Emily, and how you're trying to rethink what it means to have the right stuff. For context, Mark Watney, as I mentioned, one of my favorite characters ever um, in science fiction, he was always this concept to me that you can be so authentically yourself and still be a good astronaut. He was able to survive on Mars alone for such a long time. And in order to do that, he needed to be funny. He needed to swear and be like, you know, just so genuinely himself. And it kept him in the right mindset to continue and to keep going. But a lot of people would not consider that behavior sort of fitting or, you know, just becoming of an astronaut. You think of an astronaut as being this very militant, perfect individual who has all of these accolades and qualifications that are almost impossible to achieve, like you mentioned. And as a kid who recently discovered a love for astrobiology and also was learning that she wanted to go to space really badly, I was looking at myself being like, how am I ever going to get to that point? How am I ever going to be that perfect? And there's just so many requirements and those are still true today. I mean, astronaut selection processes are incredibly complex, incredibly challenging for a reason, but being yourself and knowing that you deserve the opportunity to fulfill whatever aspirations you want to do, whether that's touching the lunar surface or, you know, anything else, that is such a powerful thing to me. And really watching The Martian at such a young age, sort of actually at the same time that I sort of developed that love of astrobiology, gave me the confidence to say, like, I don't have to be anybody except myself to be a good astronaut, to have this this goal and actually achieve it and not just achieve it but like really kill it like mark watney was an incredible astronaut even if he wasn't real like he did these things that inspired a generation of people to love astrobiology he was a botanist he was the best botanist on mars <laughs> also the only botanist on mars and you know he gave people the confidence to start talking about science and popular culture much like star trek did earlier on in its infancy stages so to me this was my sort of star trek i guess um <laughs> which was you know this this discovery that the imperfect astronaut exists and is my favorite example of somebody that i would like to become someday can I tell you a, a short story about my relationship to the Martian? Yes, absolutely. So when I was in graduate school, and you know how graduate school can be very hectic, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I got this email one day 
saying, there's this person, he's trying to write a novel about Mars. Does anybody in the planetary science department here want to talk to him? And I was just like, nah, I, I like, I'm so busy, you know, like I've got all these projects. I'm juggling all of these things. I don't have time to talk to a novelist. Couple years passed. This amazing novel called The Martian comes out by Andy Weir. And then there's this movie that comes out shortly after that that just blows my mind. And I'm just like, where did I hear this name before? Andy Weir. Oh my God, I could have talked to him. I could have, I could have helped craft the Martian. But he did a fabulous job, right? I mean, it was it was such a scientifically real book and and movie. But I guess that is probably one of my biggest regrets from grad school is that I I didn't take the time to talk to somebody who I thought wasn't worth my time. And I think that that's a, that's a big lesson that I always keep in the back of my mind these days. It's like, if you get a request from somebody, you never know who that person's going to end up being. So um, I always try to make, make room for them because they might I, be the next Andy Weir. <laughs> I also think that's so cool because, you know, it's very much this, this concept of like science and art aren't necessarily compatible in a lot of people's minds. And being a busy grad student in the sciences, you're like, I don't have time for this like novelist who's just like mm -hmm. trying to write a book. But I think that's like so cool that, you know, Andy Weir sought out the advice of scientists when he was writing this novel and deeply cared. And it's so evident in, in the novel and in the movie that he deeply cared about science in, in this creation of this story and wanted it to feel true to life or as much as science fiction can really feel. So I, I love it for so many reasons, but the fact that so much care and attention was placed on that science aspect of the movie is one of my favorites. Yeah. And similarly with Star Trek, they have a PhD astrophysicist as the official science consultant and also talk to a professor of um, biology for, you know, astrobiological things, too. So that's Dr. Aaron McDonald's and Professor Mohammed Noor uh, on the team for Star Trek, making sure that it's uh, as realistic as can be. So, yeah, I just love that. The, the, the mixing of science and art, it's really really inspiring. And I'm glad that uh, people are doing that. Okay, Emily, uh, just one last question for you. Uh, it's something that honestly, I've kind of been wrestling with for a long time myself. So as you know, I've always wanted to be an astronaut too. Ever since I was a little kid, I've had this sort of like romantic notion of setting foot onto another world and exploring it for the first time. But recently, I've begun to learn about how our notions of exploration are very steeped in our own Western-centric, deeply problematic history of colonialism and imperialism. And Star Trek actually reflects this truth, too, very notably in those immortal opening lines, space, the final frontier. I feel like I need a professional counselor to sort of help me sort through my feelings on this, or at, at the very least, you know, a fellow planetary scientist, astrobiologist, aspiring astronaut to help me out. Emily, how do you square your own personal desire to explore strange new worlds with the need to also decolonize scientific endeavors? That is such an important question. And I think that a, it's incredible that a scientist is asking another scientist that because I don't think we talk about it enough. Yeah. But like B, I think we should actually be telling scientists to take courses in this because uh, I think it would alleviate a lot of the problems in our current society. But I think my personal viewpoint on the situation is humans are innately explorers. We have always been, we always will be. It's part of our DNA. That unfortunately has manifested in some very terrible historical consequences for humanity. And the reason why that has occurred is because we don't see ourselves as having any responsibility towards the world we are exploring. We are not considering ourselves stewards of the land that we have landed upon. We're considering ourselves temporary visitors, people who can leave their trace and turn a blind eye to it and not care. And that is so far from the truth. I think you know, looking towards indigenous mindsets of how we can come to this new world and really use the land in a reciprocal way and, and really feel connected to it in a way that gives us this 
this ability to flourish and thrive in the environment that we're in that can really only happen if we care, if we are able to continue to care for the land that gives back to us. And that's the case for Earth as far as we know, because we have life that is able to have this symbiotic relationship with one another, um, and that we are very much a part of the ecosystems we inhabit. Like, I think humans so oftentimes see themselves as the aliens in their own world, but we're not. We live here. This is our place. This is our home. And we don't take good care of our own home so much so that we are currently causing its demise, at least for us, right? The world right. will continue on beyond us. But we need to care. We need to be stewards, better stewards of the places that we inhabit. And when we start to think about exploring like other places in the universe, specifically in our solar system, because for now that's pretty much all we can be is an interplanetary species, not necessarily intergalactic yet. We need to really be so conscientious with how we do this and we need to do it right. We need to learn from our mistakes in the past and remember that Planets do not belong to anyone. They don't belong to us. They don't belong to anyone. They are entities in and of themselves. And when we visit those entities, we need to care about them as much as they would care about us and allow us to walk their surfaces. So maybe that sounds a little bit like, you know, up in the air, like, oh, they're not actually living beings. But truthfully, like when we explore, we need to be so much more aware of what our impact is and try to minimize that impact as much as possible. I know there's like already a planetary protection officer position at NASA, and I think that's one of the coolest jobs in the entire world, honestly. Um, I would love to have that job someday. And I think that is really the, the direction we should collectively be moving towards is how do we leave no trace? How do we follow camping principles when we go to these other worlds and set up our very own civilizations there if that's what we choose to do? Thank you so much for sharing those thoughts with me, Emily. I, I resonate so much with everything that you said, especially this idea of bringing back and recentering indigenous worldviews to sort of teach us about how to relate to nature, whether that's our own home world or someplace that a future astronaut is going to step foot on and treat that place with respect as if it had a sovereignty and autonomy of its own. Like you said, they're not exactly living things as we would define living in scientific words. But when we think about how we are a part of our environment and a part of our system and that that system is a part of us, right, we rely on so much, quote unquote, non-living stuff to continue to live. It's so profound. <laughs> I think it's a really difficult thing to grapple with, too, because when we see these multi-billionaires, which is a term I wish did not exist, but <laughs> when we see these multi-billionaires talking about claiming something as their own um, and even the history of space exploration being so motivated by war-torn times the cold war being one of the main motivating factors towards space exploration for the lunar surface in the first place all of these things can really lead us to believe that since its beginning space exploration has been problematic and that we have had this notion that we can claim things as our own that don't belong to really anyone. Like you mentioned, they have their own sovereignty, their own identity. And we don't see it like that. We just see it as a place to extract resources from, a place to conduct research and not really care about the consequences on that body. When all along, humans have been looking to the cosmos for inspiration, for motivation. And the moon plays such a huge role in how the earth functions. Like, oh, yeah. These things have been essentially giving us the ability to exist as humans for the longest time. They have provided us so many sources of not only inspiration, but also of like stabilizing our obliquity to allow us to exist. And, <laughs> you know, like there's scientific implications for caring about these worlds the way that they have cared for us indirectly throughout mm -hmm. our entire existence. Mm -hmm. um, I just think that the notion that capitalism brings about quite often of like ownership and trying to make the most out of whatever area you're in, financially speaking, that doesn't necessarily take into account the ownership that the place has on itself and how we need to really, really be careful about how we are respecting that place 
for other generations, but also just for the sake of the body itself. We can't consider ourselves separate entities from it. We are intimately tied with it and always have been. And separating ourselves from it is the quickest way to our demise that I can think about. So that's at least how I perceive the whole situation. That's a wonderful place to end it because it gives us so much to think about. Let's just wrap up with a few last questions here in terms of, I anticipate some of our listeners are going to get very inspired by this conversation and may want to seek out opportunities to become analog astronauts themselves. Emily, how can they do that? So I knew that I wanted to participate in an analog mission for quite some time, but I didn't really know how to get involved. There's so many analog sites all around the world, and it's really becoming such a large community. It used to be very small and tight-knit, but they're opening their arms to pretty much as many different types of individuals as possible because a good analog site is able to conduct research on as many different types of human beings as possible. We want to be as inclusive as possible. So honestly, reaching out to analog sites directly is a great option. Um, I know it sounds a little scary, <laughs> um, but I think that a lot of them are, are really, really open-minded to new opportunities for research and different individuals with different backgrounds and experiences. There's also very oftentimes uh, recruitment calls. I think Lunaris is currently running a recruitment call um, and they oftentimes do throughout the year. So there's really no wrong time to apply but also reaching out to people who have done analog missions before. They typically are in contact still with the analog site that they were on, and they can really get you in touch with the right people to participate in something like this, uh, which I think more people should participate in. I think it gives you a very good overview of, you know, what it's like to be in space without necessarily having to go in space. And if you're listening to this and you are at Emily's home academic institution, Purdue University, there is a new opportunity to become like an astronaut in training. Is that right, Emily? Tell me, tell me a little bit about that program. This is a very new group that Purdue has, but it is the Space and Earth Analogs Research Chapter at Purdue, which is SEARCH. Um, and I joined their group right after my analog mission in late 2022. And I am currently their Student Analog Astronaut Training Program Lead. So the S-A-A-T-P program. <laughs> um, and so for those who may know, um, Purdue runs groups of its own students at MDRS, the Mars Desert Research Station analog site. And they do this nearly every year. And we have actually helped to organize some of those excursions and expeditions. And because we were lacking this sort of notion of, well, okay, if somebody wants to become an astronaut, how do they go about doing that? Like, what are even the requirements? What do you even start to think about? I, I just so fondly remember when I was 16, the Canadian Space Agency launched their, um, in my lifetime, their first announcement for calls for, you know, astronaut candidates. And I applied, like, fully knowing that I was never going to get a call back. When you were 16? Yep. Yep, <laughs> That's yep, great. Yep. I love it. <laughs> so, But the reason why I did it was because I wanted to know exactly what that application said so that when I was ready, I would be ready. Right. Um, I wanted to know exactly what they wanted from me. And really what kind of skills they were looking for in an individual to make it more real for me. And so I took that knowledge bank that I sort of had from over the years, plus my analog experience, and I put together this, this program that allows this community of students at Purdue, the cradle of the astronauts, to train together to work towards their goals of being an astronaut or even to eventually be an analog astronaut. And so that's really what we're running this summer first time ever that Purdue has ever had anything like this. And I'm so deeply excited for us to have this happen. Okay. Last question. I swear people <laughs> listening to this are definitely going to want to continue to follow your work and your career. Where can people find you on the internet, Emily? So I am mostly active on Instagram and Twitter. I would say more so on Instagram than Twitter, but uh, my handle on both is at Astro Emily, no caps, no spaces. And I mean, LinkedIn, I guess, but I don't really know if anybody uses LinkedIn for some. <laughs> so feel free to follow me on that too, but I don't use it as often as I should probably. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much again for being on Strange New Worlds. This was such an inspiring conversation for me in multiple dimensions. So thank you once again, Emily. 
I'm so glad that I was able to participate and I hope that the listeners took away some cool things from our conversations. I had a great time. <laughs> I've applied to become a NASA astronaut a few times now, but I've never made it very far at all. Although I'm pretty sure I'll never stop applying to the astronaut corps, I think I've made my peace with the idea that being an astronaut isn't something you can just decide to do. Honestly, statistically speaking, there was a much higher probability of me becoming a professional football player, which was also something that I wanted to do when I was eight. Heck, I probably have a better chance of appearing on a Star Trek episode than actually traveling to space. But speaking to Emily filled me with hope. Hope that one day NASA's astronaut corps might accept me, an imperfect astronaut candidate. Hope that one day someone even better for the job, Emily, will break Earth's orbit, bound for a strange new world, and pave the way for many others to follow. If you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And tell your friends about the show, too. You can follow Strange New Worlds on Twitter at Science of Trek, and myself at MikeY, M-I-Q-U-A-I. Until next time, stay safe, stay curious, and I'll see you out there. How is Stephanie doing, by the way? She's great. Like chaotic as per usual, because <laughs> we have four students in our lab group. And Angie and Kyle and Ash, they're doing okay? They're doing good. They said good. hi. They specifically Aww. told me to say hi. <laughs> okay, good. Well, tell them that I specifically say hi to each of them in return. Yeah, they're like <laughs> so excited. They're like, oh my God, can I just like join the Zoom so I can like <laughs> hang out with Mike? <laughs> Aw. Uh, so funny.